Amen. Isaiah chapter 40. If you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40. Hey, let's give this team a round of applause for leading us in worship. They do such a good job. Such a good job leading us every week. A lot of gifted people in this church. And, and some of you are holding out. You got some voices you could sing, be singing in the choir. Um, see Dakota and get yourself plugged in. But uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, if you have your Bibles. There's a small town in New Mexico, New Mexico called Cloudcroft. And I've talked about this town before, but right outside Cloudcroft, there's this little, used to be a little nine-hole golf course. And surrounding that golf course was kind of a neighborhood of cabins. And at the end of one of those holes, overlooking the green, embedded by some trees, was this red and white cabin that was my grandparents' growing up. They lived in West Texas, but they had this cabin, and and so we would go a couple times a year. And there was this deck on the second floor that you could walk out onto and just overlook a little bit of the golf course, but the trees and the valley, and it was just this beautiful scene. Well, inside the cabin, there was this bedroom, this little squared bedroom, painted green. And I have this memory, this vague image of me lying in a small bed in that bedroom. I might have had a brother or sister in there with me, a, a cousin or something, but I just have this image, this memory of me lying in this bed. I'm about eight years old, and my grandmother, we call her Grammy, she's probably watching right now, and she's sitting there in this image, in this memory, next to the bed, and she's singing. That classic song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Oh, How I Love Jesus. Out of all the memories of that cabin, that one sticks out. Over and over, her just singing those words, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Song I sing now to our kids at nighttime often. And in this memory, there's one descriptive word that comes to mind for how I felt as a little eight-year-old boy at that moment. And it's this word, comfort. Comfort. It's a word that means to be at ease. To be at rest from distress or pain or grief. To be at ease from a heavy burden. And you and I, we need comfort today. Specifically, we need spiritual comfort. Because for many of us, we are exhausted. We looked at this last week, but specifically I want to focus on the fact that our souls are exhausted, many of us. Trying so hard to impress what we know, what we have learned, what our opinions and perspectives are, what we can do, what we can say, what we have not done. Trying so hard to impress, trying so hard to create for ourselves a perfect image in our minds and in the minds of others towards us. 
trying to create so hard a perfect life, a perfect relationships, a perfect setting, a perfect situation, a perfect life, trying so hard to sustain ourselves. Trying so hard to save ourselves. As if we subconsciously envision a scale in which the good must outweigh the bad. Well, I've got to do this. I must do that. I have to. I gotta. I need. I gotta. I gotta. I, I, I. And so we're spiritually exhausted. So much so that many of us are on the verge of crashing collapsing under the pressure, under the burden to create, to sustain, to save ourselves. And oh, who will save us from the spiritual exhaustion? Who will give us comfort for our souls? That brings us to Isaiah 40. Isaiah is is a book full of rich theology, rich prophecy. It's a brilliant book. And Isaiah 39 ends a very long section in the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 39, you and I are left with a foolish, arrogant Hezekiah. And we get the taste of exile of darkness, of despair, of desolation, of death, a heavy, heavy burden. Because Hezekiah has allowed the enemy to come in and to study and see everything. These Babylonians who come in and eventually will ravish them and destroy them. And this is all because of the Israelites' own doing. Because at the core, at the foundation of it all, the cause for exile is that they had rejected God. They had sinned. And so Isaiah 39 leaves you with this picture of just darkness, of despair, of desolation, of death, this heavy burden. Oh, who will save the Israelites now? But then Isaiah 40 begins a whole new kind of section over the next many chapters. And some of these chapters of Isaiah 40 and the next several include some of the richest prophecies of Christ you'll ever get in the Old Testament. But this is how that section begins in Isaiah 40. Let's look at 1 through 5. This is what he says. Comfort, comfort. Isaiah 39 leaves us with a heavy burden. Exile, death, destruction at the cause of their own selves. But now we get in verse chapter 40, comfort, comfort. My people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service, her labor is finished. Her sin, her iniquity has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Blessings upon blessings despite her sins. Verse 3. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our gods. Every mountain and hill made low. 
The rough ground shall become level. Every valley shall be raised up, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people shall see that glory together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, in order to best understand this text, to see the ver- these verses in the overall biblical context, to see it in an overall cosmic context, we need to start right here in the wilderness. Specifically, we need to start in Numbers chapter 21. You can go back and read this a little later. But the setting of Numbers chapter 21 is the Israelites in the wilderness. And up to this point in their story, God had created them. He had provided for them. He had sustained them. He had saved them from slavery and bondage and decay and so on. Well, one thing he provided for them up to this point was bread from heaven. A mysterious element known as manna. But in Numbers 21 verse 5, they began to speak against God and Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us here to the wilderness to die? They complained. And then they said, listen, there's nothing to eat here. Nothing to drink. And we hate this horrible manna. We despise it. We reject your bread from heaven. They weren't just rejecting the manna. They were rejecting God and the one he sent, Moses. Adam and Eve didn't just take a bite out of the apple. They rejected God. They rejected the manna. We don't like it. We don't like the bread from heaven. It's worthless. They, in essence, were rejecting God. And as a result of their rejecting the manna, we read in verse 6 of Numbers 21, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. These poisonous snakes came in to the camp. Many people were bitten, and many people died as a result. So because they rejected the manna, a curse was enacted in which a poison then coursed through their bodies and brought death. Snakes are like the universal symbol of evil or darkness or death. People despise snakes. If you like snakes, people think you're weird, right? But that's exactly what came upon them. They despised the bread from heaven, but now they got something truly despicable, a terrible, wicked, poisonous snake that would no doubt take their memories back to the garden. So instead of filled with manna, instead of filled with blessing and life from heaven, they were filled with poison, darkness, and evil, and death, a heavy burden from the depths of the earth. So what happens after that? Well, we read in verse 7, and the people come to Moses and they cry out, we have sinned. We We rebelled. We've sinned. We were in the wrong because we spoke against the Lord, Yahweh, and against you, Moses. So please, pray, intercede for us that the Lord will take away the snakes. Take away the source of the poison that's killing us. So Moses did just that. He prayed for the people. They cry out. He intercedes on their behalf. 
And God answers that prayer. But hear this. Listen. God did not take away the snakes. That's the most remarkable thing, almost, about this story. He didn't take away the snakes. He didn't take away the curse. Instead, he requires of them, each one of them, a personal response. He calls them to respond personally by each one of them personally looking upon something truly despicable. By looking upon the curse, the source of the curse, hanging on a pole. The Lord answered Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. This is mind-boggling. Make an image and have my people look upon that image. All throughout the Old Testament, they're told, don't cast for yourselves images. But here, he says, make a replica, an image of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And listen, all who are bitten, all who have the poison coursing through them, will live. They'll be healed. They'll be comforted if they simply look at it. And it wasn't just to look. To look was an acknowledgement we sinned. We rejected God and we rejected his bread from heaven. But we cry out today for him to save us from that sin, from that poison that's killing us. So Moses made the snake out of bronze and he attached it to a pole. Then anyone personally who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed, saved, comforted. Truly, they would live. The people had called the bread detestable. So Moses was commanded of God to make an image of something truly detestable in their culture and to hold that high on a pole as their only means to deliverance, their only means of healing, their only means of salvation, their only means of comfort, to make an image of the very thing that had caused their death, a symbol of hope that was disgusting and repulsive in nature. One commentator said, the people had in their minds transformed the gracious bread of heaven into detestable food, so the Lord now transformed a symbol of death into a source of life and deliverance. He goes on to say that the curse became the basis for salvation. Another commentator said the rejection of God's grace brought a symbol of death. The intervention of God's grace brought a source of life. In other words, man and snake are twin aspects of God's grace in this context. And God required a personal response. He called them to respond personally, each one of them, to look upon that snake on a pole. The manna had to be eaten or it would rot. The snake had to be seen or it would rot or it would leave them rotten in poison. So you personally had to look upon the curse on a pole that you might be healed, that you might have comfort. Only those who did would be delivered. The question when you read this story in Numbers 21 is why? Why would God ask Moses to fasten together a snake like this? 
an image of the very thing that was causing their death, the very symbol of the curse. To have him fasten it onto a pole, to be lifted up for everyone to gaze upon it for salvation. The reason I'm convinced, in light of the New Testament, is so as to declare for humanity Jesus and him crucified on a tree. On a pole, lifted up for you and me to look upon. Why? Because in John chapter 6, we are told that Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is the manna. In John chapter 1, we're told that we rejected the bread from heaven. As a result, because we at its core rejected God, we have a curse coursing through our veins. We are dying. We are perishing. All humanity has sinned, has rejected God. It's not just that we rejected the bread. We rejected God himself. All of us, like Hezekiah, we've let an enemy in, and an enemy is ravaging and destroying us. Yet, like in Numbers 21, God gave us a way, and his name is Jesus. As he said, I am the way. As Peter said, he's the only name given to us by which we must be saved, healed, to live, to be comforted. Thus, those who believe in him shall not perish. Instead, they would find rest for their souls, comfort. They would be renewed, a new kind of strength, a new kind of life, born again. Because listen, because Jesus is not just the bread from heaven, he is the one who is also the snake hung on a pole that we're to look upon and believe in for salvation. God didn't take away the curse, he sent his son to become the curse. You say, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Jesus. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who has a curse in them, they're dying, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. But you say, wait a second, how will Jesus be lifted up? Again, just like the bronze snake on a pole. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, listen, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone unto myself. John clarifies and said, he said this to indicate how he was going to die. And we know he died on the cross. But wait a minute, we're told in Deuteronomy 21, 23, that anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Exactly. As Paul said, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross, when he was lifted up like a snake on a pole. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. As Leslie Newbigin said, Only one claim remains, which can never be withdrawn from all of history. Jesus, the slain lamb on the tree, is king. And that is the gospel. In and through the presence, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 
comfort has been announced. An enemy has come in to ravage and destroy us by our own doing. We sinned. We brought this upon ourselves. But comfort has come to us, has been announced to us, and that is the message of Isaiah 40. This new section in Isaiah is foreshadowing this moment in which Jesus would come. So comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Proclaim to them that their hard labor has been completed, that their iniquity, their sin has been paid for. Then he says in verse 3, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our gods. That's a weird thing to say. In verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see this glory together. Well, we're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, by John, that the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The moment of Jesus becoming one of us, Isaiah 40, verse 5, was fulfilled. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And in that same context in John chapter 1, we're also told that John the Baptist, who, as Jesus said, was the Elijah to come, said, listen, about himself, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said here in Isaiah 40. In other words, Isaiah 40 is declaring the future existence and message of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus and Jesus is the glory of God that we have looked upon. He's the bread from heaven, ultimately at our core that we rejected in the garden. But he's also the curse on the tree who came to declare to us comfort, comfort. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll heal you. I'll give you life. You will enter an eternal Sabbath. No more trying to save yourself. I've come to save you. All you who are spiritually exhausted, I speak tenderly to you. Your iniquity has been paid for. As Jesus declared on that pole, it is finished. Your iniquity is gone. All you have to do, the calling, the invitation, is to look upon Him and believe. And if you would do that, you would find comfort for your souls. Many of us, we are spiritually exhausted carrying a heavy burden of iniquity of sin that we think we can get rid of by just attending a building gathering like this. Trying to say all the right things, do all the right things, study all the right things, memorize all the right things. Listen, the veil that's over your heart is only lifted when you turn to Jesus. The, the poison coursing through you is only taken away when you look upon the curse on the tree who is Jesus and believe that you're a sinner and he's the only one that can save you. Jesus is inviting you. He's calling you to respond personally. To just stop 
Just come to Him. Behold Him. Look upon Him. And believe. And find rest for your souls. Comfort. Never ending. As we read last week at the end of Isaiah 40. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord, that He's the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth, the cosmos. He won't grow weary or tired. His understanding no one can fathom. He's the one who gives strength to the weary. Increases the power of the weak. As David would say, He's the one that, Dakota read it earlier, that makes us lie down in green pastures, beside still waters, who renews our souls, gives comfort to us. Even youth will grow tired and weary. Young men will stumble and fall. People all around us fall, trying and trying and working and working and going and going and going. But those who hope in the Lord, who set their minds and their hearts on the Lord, will renew their strength. They'll be comforted. They'll be healed. They will live. And they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Listen, you have a poison, each one of us, coursing through your veins like a cancer you cannot stop. There's no treatment. There's no cure. Only death and judgment. But behold, our God has given us Jesus. And in and through Jesus... There is a cure. There is salvation. There is comfort. He's paid for our sin. He gave his body and his blood for us. And has invited us to look upon him and to believe. We're told in Hebrews 12 to fix our eyes on Jesus. To look upon him. I'll finish with this. Because this is where some of us need to pray. God, keep us looking if we've looked. Bring us to look upon Jesus if we've never looked. With heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite our team forward. Our deacons are going to come down, these front pews. As we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, as we remember His body given for us, His blood poured out for us, during this time I just want to invite us to get our hearts and our minds right, to set our hearts and our minds on Jesus, to look upon him. For some of us, that means looking upon Jesus for the very first time. For some of us, that's us crying out to the Lord, Lord, direct my gaze back to you. Paul talks about not partaking of the cup or the bread in an unworthy manner. During this time of response and prayer, just get your hearts and minds right. Confess sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you those sins. He tells us that in 1 John. Set your hearts and minds on Jesus. Take a moment and pray. Or even sing this song with us during this time. But get your hearts and your minds right before the Lord.